Luke chapter 19. If you're not there, you can turn there, please. Luke chapter 19. And when you get there, maybe you can stand to your feet. And that would indicate that you're there. And of course, we do this to honor the word of God and the God of the word. And then we'll read God's word. So Luke chapter 19, if you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen for you to follow along. This is starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You can be seated. Again, this text is describing the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. You'll remember if you've been with us through our studies of the Gospel of Luke, that back in chapter 9, there was a major turning point in this story of the life of Jesus. Because up until Luke 9.51, Jesus had been doing his ministry in the northern parts of Israel, in Galilee, and now he had, in in Luke 9.51, set his face to go toward Jerusalem, where he would ultimately die for the sins of of the world. And so from chapter 9, verse 51, until this point, 10 chapters later, Jesus and his disciples have been traveling from the north down to Jerusalem. And suddenly they arrive. But you'll notice that after traveling on foot the whole journey, Jesus decides he's going to make the last leg of the journey, not on foot, but actually on an animal, on a, a colt or a young donkey. And so in verse 30, he tells two of his disciples to go get this donkey for him. I want you to put yourself in their shoes and imagine getting that task from Jesus. So guys, we're going into Jerusalem tomorrow, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to this village. I want you to find a colt that nobody's ever sat on and just untie the donkey and just walk it away. So just walk it away, Jesus. Yeah, just take the donkey. And then Jesus is anticipating their hesitancy. And he says, and if anybody asks you, what are you doing with my donkey? Just say to them, the Lord has need of it. Just say the Lord has need of it. You sure, Jesus, this is going to work? Yeah, just go for it, guys. I've got this all worked out. Okay, so I can imagine the disciples walking over to go get the donkey. And they're going, man, this is, this is weird. I, I hope this works out. I hope we don't go to prison today for stealing somebody else's animal. 
And so, of course, it works out just like Jesus says. They walk up, they untie this colt, and the owner's like, hey, hey, what are you guys doing with my animal? They turn around, they're like, so about that. They do like the Jedi mind trick. The Lord has need of it. (laughs) The Lord has need of it. Oh, cool, if the Lord has need of it, go ahead. Yes. They walk off and they bring the donkey to Jesus. The question, of course, is why does Jesus decide that he wants to make that final leg of the journey on a donkey? Well, as students of the scriptures, we know that Jesus chose that animal intentionally because Jesus was making a statement about who he is. What we discover in the Old Testament is that in Zechariah 9.9, we're dealing with a prophetic text there that tells us about the coming king of Israel. And this was the king that was going to fulfill all of the prophetic hopes of God's people. This was the king that God told to David it was going to be his son who would sit on David's throne and reign forever. And in Zechariah 9.9, we learn that this king is going to come to them riding on the back of a young donkey. In Matthew's gospel, in fact, Matthew points out that this triumphal entry of Jesus is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 by directly quoting it in his gospel. Here's what Zechariah 9.9 says. So this is the prophecy about the coming king. Listen closely. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what Jesus is doing here is Jesus selects this young donkey so that he could step into the prophetic hopes of God's people and declare that he himself is, in fact, their promised king. He is, in fact, the one that God was sending to rescue them and deliver his people. And notice in the text here, the people get the memo. The people receive him as their king. That's why they begin throwing their cloaks on the donkey and throwing their cloaks on the floor. That's why in John's gospel, we read that they start waving palm branches, which what people would do is they would wave palm branches in victory celebrations. And that's why, of course, the people are shouting and praising God, saying, blessed is the, don't miss this, king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord in verse 38 of chapter 19. See, people spread their cloaks on the floor as an act of royal homage. They would pay homage to a king by laying their cloaks down underneath the king. We see a great example of this. Back in the Old Testament, when a king named Jehu was being brought in and received as the king, here's what we read in 2 Kings 9.13. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So again, the people are they're, they're picking up on what Jesus is doing. And they're laying their cloaks underneath him as an act of royal homage. And they're declaring him as their king that God has sent. So to summarize here, the point of this passage, the point of the triumphal entry, as Jesus makes his way into the city of Jerusalem in this fashion, is Jesus is saying, I am the king that you've been waiting for. I am the king of God's kingdom. I am the king who has come to deliver you 
from your sins. The Pharisees, in typical fashion, try to stop the party. They say, hey teacher, rebuke your disciples in verse 39. And you know, the Pharisees are representative of the entire city. It's, hard for, or it's easy for us to be hard on the Pharisees because Jesus has a lot of issues with the Pharisees in the Gospels. But they're representative of the whole city because this is Sunday, Palm Sunday. In just five days, the entire city is going to turn on Jesus. The entire city is going to shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him as he's brought before the governor, Pilate. And this, friends, is why Jesus, upon entering the city, actually weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Look at it here in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You can hear the the heartbreak and the voice of Jesus in the midst of being received and praised and celebrated as a king. Jesus seeing the holy city, the city of God, actually breaks down in tears. Because Jesus knows in this city of cities, in the very city of God, the one place that He, God in human flesh, should have been received. He knew He would be rejected. He knew He would be delivered over to death. And in rejecting Him, He knew that the people of this city would actually be sealing their own fate. And that judgment would befall them. Rather than experiencing peace through Jesus Christ, which is what he so longed to bring to his people, he knew that through their rejection of him, they would actually seal their own fate and experience God's judgment. Judgment from the Romans, only a couple decades later in AD 70, which is what Jesus references here, when he talks about your enemies barricading you in in AD 70, the Romans under General Titus did exactly that. They barricaded in the city. They actually sacked the city. They set the city on fire. Men, women, and children being killed in the city. And Jesus even prophesies here, but also other places more directly in the other Gospels, prophesies that the very temple that was sort of the focal point of Israeli national identity, maybe sort of like the Statue of Liberty for us, What Jesus said is not a single stone of that temple will remain on top of another. And of course, history tells us that that was true. Because when they set the city on fire, the gold inside of the temple actually melted. And it entered all of the crevices and cracks between the stones. So Titus ordered that every stone be dismantled from the temple so they could retrieve the gold. And I've visited the temple before. And if you go to Israel today, you will see some of these massive stones that are still laying there in heaps of rubble because they were tossed down and pushed down when they were dismantled from the temple. And Jesus here is warning them of that judgment that would come in AD 70. But even more so, he warns them and weeps over their judgment that awaits them in eternity from the very God that they sought to worship. And so he weeps. 
It's a great reminder that judgment is not something that pleases God. And here's Jesus, God in human flesh, who knows that these very same same people are going to whip him, they're going to beat him, they're going to rip his beard out, they're going to nail him to a tree in five days. And rather than being vindictive, rather than being angry, no, 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 he breaks down in tears, reminding us of God's heart toward people who reject him. Yes, he will judge you because he's a just God, but don't think he's not going to do that with a broken heart and with tears running down his cheeks. So let's pause here. Let's come up for air. What have we learned so far? When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he declared himself king, declared himself the deliverer of God's people, and then he weeps over the city because he knows that judgment is coming upon them for their rejection of him. But now let's think about what his first order of business is when he gets to the city of God. Because this is what I want us to spend our time considering together today is Jesus' first order of business. What does he do? Well, he makes a visit in the city of God to the house of God, the temple, the place where God's presence was uniquely manifest throughout the Old Testament. He goes in and he visits God's house. In Mark's gospel, we're told that on the very day he came into the city, he went and he checked out the temple. This is Mark 11.11, where we read, And when he looked around at everything, this is Jesus taking inventory, looking around the entire temple, getting a feel for what was going on there. As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So again, he comes into the city. He's received as the king. He weeps over the city. He goes into the temple. He evaluates the situation, and it's dark, so he goes home, back to Bethany, where his friends are at, Mary, Martha, stays at their home with his disciples. But the next day he came back, and what does he do? He goes directly to the temple, and he's on a mission. And that mission is a pretty extreme one. Look at verse 45. And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus comes to the temple and he begins to drive people out. He drives money changers and people who are buying and selling in the temple precincts, he drives them out of the temple. From the other gospels we learn that he actually not just tells them to leave, but he starts overturning their tables, upending their business. Have you ever been somewhere where somebody actually flipped over a table in a room before? I honestly thought about doing a demonstration for you this morning, but I thought sometimes there are babies in the sanctuary and I don't want to freak the children out because it's, it's, it's a violent act, right? Especially if the table is full of stuff. Like if somebody in a restaurant, if you're all gathered around having a meal, and the guy at the table over flips the table over in a restaurant, and plates and glasses and silverware fly over. I mean, it's going to get your attention. This is not a, a subtle, sneaky way to confront somebody. This is like the bull in a china shop way of confronting somebody. This is this is you coming in and making a statement. This is you coming in 
on a mission, trying to get people's attention, letting them know there's a problem here. And I'm going to fix it. You're going to go through me because I've got an issue with what's going on here. So this is violent. This is pretty much outrageous. I mean, everybody's jaws would have dropped. We're told in John's, I believe it's John's account of Jesus entering the temple. May have been a different instance, possibly this instance, that he even had braided a whip before. And he's going all Indiana Jones on people in there. He's knocking over their business and he's driving them out of the temple. So Jesus makes a scene. Jesus takes charge. This must have been pretty shocking for his disciples. They walk into the temple of Jesus, have no idea what he's going to do, and boom, he starts flipping the tables. He starts driving people out. I can imagine the disciples are behind him and they're going, oops, hold on, I'm He's not usually like this. We'll pay for that. We apologize. They're trying to do damage control. Because in a lot of ways, this was out of character for Jesus. Jesus is the meek one. Jesus is the gentle one. And he certainly is. But meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under restraint. It's not somebody who's incapable of changing a situation. It's somebody who restrains their strength for other purposes. But every once in a while, there are situations where righteous indignation is the right response, and certainly this is it for Jesus. And so he flexes some some muscle, so to speak. Now what's going on? What is the issue that Jesus is so upset with here in the temple? Well, certainly there were some unethical practices going on in the temple. Evidently by this time, there was quite an extensive system in place in the temple for exploiting worshipers when they would come to Jerusalem for the high holy days. And so they were exploiting God's people who were trying to come and worship. Uh, For example, they would have animals for sale there. And most worshipers, knowing the law, would come to Jerusalem with animals to offer in sacrifices. But what was going on is the religious leaders would basically inspect the animals and they would look at an animal and the animal might be otherwise good and acceptable for sacrifice, but they would go, you know what? That animal's not going to work. But wait, there's good news. If you look behind door number two over here, we actually have some goats for sale for you or we have a bull or whatever the animal is and these ones have been pre-approved by the FDA. Now they've been pre-approved by the priest and these are good for sacrifice and we'll sell them to you for a hefty markup. It's kind of like when you go to the movie theaters, right? And you're late, you want to stay up, and you and the spouse or you and the significant other, you stop and get your own coffee, and you're ready to walk in, and you got your candy, and they look at you and go, sorry, you can't bring that in here. Oh, great, I'll just throw away my $5 latte. Cool. They go, but don't worry, we we sell gourmet Folgers right over there for $14 a cup. We got your back. And you're like, this is highway robbery. I can't believe you're doing this to me. Same sort of thing going on in the temple. Oh, those animals, you can't, we, we can't use those here, but we'll give you these ones for a lot more. There's also uh, certain currency that you had to use in buying and trading around the temple. And so people were coming into worship from all sorts of different regions all over the Mediterranean world. And it was like basically money exchanging going on and they were tacking on fees to all of that. It was a money-making, profiteering, exploiting business that was going on. And of course, without question, Jesus was upset about that. 
The fact that they were, they were actually preventing God's people from worshiping and they were making that more difficult made Jesus unhappy. But friends, I want you to know something this morning. That's actually not the main thing that's going on here. That's not the main thing that Jesus is concerned about. Because Jesus' main concern isn't the money changers themselves, but rather the whole temple system that has experienced mission drift. God had given His people, the Jews, a mission. And that mission was to be a light to the Gentiles around them. That mission was for God's house actually to be a house of prayer, not just for the Jewish nation, but for all peoples. And they were to come to the temple and engage with God, and this was supposed to be a place of holiness, a place of prayer, a place of worship, a place where people actually meet with God. But at some point they had experienced mission drift. They have gotten off course. And we see that from the things that Jesus says here as He's driving out the the money changers. Jesus quotes from two different Old Testament passages, two prophetic texts. The first, when Jesus says, it is written, he's quoting from Isaiah, my house shall be a house of prayer. This is Isaiah 56. I want to read you the verses right around it so you can get a feel for what's going on. This is Isaiah 56, 6-7. through So again, Jesus drives out the money changers and he quotes Isaiah 56 where it reads, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted at my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer, don't miss it, for all peoples. Now, we're not really sure why Luke actually uh, didn't put the end of that quote for all peoples in his presentation of Jesus' quote. Some of the other gospel writers do. They quote that directly. The problem Jesus is having is, my house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. Again, the idea is the, the Jews and the religious leaders had failed at the mission. They were supposed to be this light to the Gentiles. Rather than obstructing the worship of the nations, they were supposed to be facilitating the worship of the nations. And yet now, the whole religious system in Israel had gone sideways. The temple was not living up to its calling. Rather than being this house of prayer for all peoples, it was, as Jesus goes on to quote another text, a den of thieves or a den of robbers, which is a reference to impending judgment. Jesus here is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7. Again, I want to read the text around it to give you a feel for what Jesus is trying to tap into as he makes these statements in the temple. This is Jeremiah chapter 7, starting in verse 8. You can follow along here. The prophet says to the house of Israel, he says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, Swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? There's where Jesus is quoting. 
Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. God was saying there through Jeremiah, Look, my people worshipped at one point at Shiloh. But they were doing all sorts of heinous things. They were living in sin and I destroyed Shiloh. And now that same destruction is going to fall on you because you're doing the same thing. Rather than honoring me in my house of worship, you are profaning it. You're living in sin. And you're obstructing people from worshiping me and therefore judgment is coming down on you. You've made the temple a den of thieves. Jesus sees in the sinful practices of these money changers a picture of the rebellion of Israel in general and their unfaithfulness in representing Yahweh, the Lord, rightly. Therefore, Jesus goes into the temple and he brings judgment on them by overturning their business practices. And of course, he promises them future judgment, a greater judgment where the temple itself will be destroyed And brought to an end. So here's the point. The cleansing of the temple. Is actually about the closing of the temple. Here's the point. Jesus isn't just walking into the temple saying. Hey let's clean up our act a little bit here guys. I don't like that we're ripping people off. Let's fix that. No Jesus is walking in and saying you're fired. Jesus is walking into the temple saying you're done. Jesus is walking into the temple And he's not just driving out money changers. He's driving out the entire religious system of the temple because it's experienced mission drift. It's lost sight of what it was meant to do. And it has failed entirely at what God had intended for the temple to do. And so Jesus is evicting them and he is taking up shop in the temple. I want you to notice there in verse 47, Jesus goes on teaching daily in the temple at this point. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 14, we learn that Jesus was also healing the blind. He was healing the lame in the temple. Again, from Sunday on Palm Sunday all the way up until Friday where Jesus is going to get delivered over and be crucified. Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's healing people in the temple. You know what He's doing? He's restoring to the temple what it was actually intended to do. He said, you're fired. Let me show you what the temple was meant to be. It's a place where people come and they learn about God. It's a place where people come and they experience healing and restoration. It's a place where they come and they engage with God. And that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus took over the temple. And that's because church, let me blow your mind for a minute this morning. We have to get this this morning. Jesus is taking over the temple because Jesus is the temple. Jesus has become the temple of God. In fact, in John's version of Jesus cleansing the temple, which may be from a previous time, we're not really sure. We read this. This is John chapter 2. So he goes and he cleans the temple out. The Jews say to him, 
What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But Jesus then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, Jesus knew the second he showed up on earth that there was a new temple here on earth. And the reason for that is because Jesus is the dwelling place of God because Jesus is God incarnate. In the introduction to the Gospel of John, we read this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So who is this Word that we're talking about that created everything? Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, God the Son descended in human flesh when He was conceived by the Holy Spirit from the Virgin Mary to dwell among us. And what's so interesting about this verse is that the Greek word for dwell can also be translated tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled us, a clear allusion to the precursor for the temple, which was the tabernacle where God's presence was manifest in Israel. So Jesus comes and he tabernacles among us. God's presence is now not in a building, but in a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is God in human flesh, fully God, fully man. This has huge implications for us this morning as we think about who Jesus is. Yes, Jesus is the King. But again, Jesus is not just the King who would deliver His people. Jesus is God in human flesh. Think about the tabernacle or the temple. Again, the temple was a place where God's presence was. And now that's Jesus. That tells us something about Jesus. God in human flesh. Under the old covenant, the temple was the only way to God's presence. You had to go there. Now under the new covenant, church, we need to remember, Jesus is the only way into the presence of God. That's why when people say that they believe that Jesus is a way to knowing God or relating to God, if this is true, that's really quite nonsensical. Because Jesus is not a way. When you come to Jesus, He's not pointing you onward somewhere else to God. When you come to Jesus, you literally are coming to God. We meet God in the person of Jesus Christ. But not only was the temple the place where God's presence was, the temple was the place of sacrifice. It was the place of cleansing for your sins under the Old Covenant. And notice that in Jesus we experience cleansing from our sins. In Jesus, there is a sacrifice that is now made for all of us who have put our faith in Him. In Hebrews chapter 10, we read about it. We read, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
Similarly, we read in 1 Peter 1, 17-19 that we ought to conduct ourselves with fear throughout our time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, under the old covenant, the Israelites had limited access to God because of the sacrifices of these animals. Those sacrifices merely covered their sins temporarily. But church, in Christ, our sins are not just covered over. No, in Christ, the spotless Lamb, the Lamb of God, our sins have actually been taken away. Our sins have actually been removed. And now you and I, unlike the Jews of old, don't have restricted access to God or mediated access through a high priest among us. No, no, no. We have unlimited access to God through Jesus Christ. Remember, after Jesus died, the veil was torn. The the veil that used to separate the place of God's presence from God's people, it was torn. And now in Christ, you and I have unrestricted access to the Father, which is why... In Hebrews 4.16 we read, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you know what would have happened if you walked into the temple in Jesus' day and you tried to go in through the, the veil and you tried to go into the throne of God? You would die. You would die. You'd be struck dead right there. And so how alarming is it when the author to Hebrews now says, just go on in. Anytime you want, draw near to the throne of grace. And instead of experiencing your death, find mercy to help you in times of need. Unrestricted access to the presence of God because of what Christ has done for us. Here in the cleansing of the temple, Jesus is effectively shutting down the temple. He's replacing it No longer is God's presence found there. God's presence is found in Jesus, God the Son. But before we close today, did you know that as we're thinking about the presence of God moving from the temple, being realized in the person of Christ, did you know there's one more movement in Scripture for the temple and for the presence of God? I'm going to say something crazy right now. Are you all ready for it? Some of you are going to walk out of here right now. Some of you are going to, you know the emoji that has the head exploding? That's going to be you right now. Did you know that God right now dwells in the heart of every single Christian? In the person of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures actually teach us that when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, actually takes up residence inside of you. And you become, listen to me, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the very temple of God. Now, some of us have been in church so long, you're like, yep. But I'll tell you what, if you're visiting right now, if you're not a Christian, you're sitting there going, or you're going, these people have lost their minds. (laughs) They seriously think God dwells inside of them? That's what the the scriptures teach. 
Because after Jesus died on the cross for our sins, after he took our sins and he drove them into the depths of the sea, as it were, he took them and he cast them as far as east is from the west, he rose again from the dead three days later, and then he ascended to the Father and he seated at the right hand of God now, and you know what he did? He sent the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us. This is what he promised in John 14, 16, and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you, or with you, and will be in you. Crazy, but true. The Apostle Paul even calls believers the temple of the Holy Spirit within you in 1 Corinthians 6.19. This is a radical shift in the presence of God. From the temple, that's where people would interact with God, to the Son of God, the person of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, to now the Spirit of God actually taking up residence inside of every heart of every believer in Him. It's amazing. And again, we can never lose sight of how crazy this is. If you're a Christian this morning, God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is residing inside of you. It's crazy. It's mind-boggling. It's a mystery. But it's also the glory of the gospel. Do you know the gospel says that you were created in the image of God? But goes on to say that through your sin, you've marred the image of God or you've distorted the image of God. And yet now think about the, the amazing news of the gospel is that even though you are created in the image of God, even though you've damaged that through sin, you are now indwelt by God himself and he's renewing you into his perfect image. You see how it comes full circle? It's amazing. I want to pause just for a moment and draw your attention because this is important for us as Christians to the Trinitarian shape of the presence of God. What I mean by that is in the Old Testament, when God dwelt in the temple, God is referred to as the Father, and He certainly is. In the New Testament, we see Jesus on the scene, and we notice God's presence is then mediated through Jesus, God the Son. And finally, with what we're talking about now, we notice that God's presence is mediated through the Holy Spirit living inside of each and every one of us. And so we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit active in our salvation now, if you're new to Christianity and you've been listening closely to what I'm saying, you're probably scratching your head and that's okay. You probably have questions. But the God of the Bible is one God who exists in three eternal, equal, and distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what the Bible reveals. This is what all of our creeds teach us. In fact, we sing this in our worship. Last week we sang a song, this I believe. The lyrics go like this. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. So the Holy Spirit is living inside of each and every one of us today. And we need to close now reflecting on the implications that that has for each and every one of us because they're huge. Just as the temple in the Old Testament was a place of holiness, did you know that God's temple now, you and me, are called to also live lives of holiness so that we don't grieve the Holy, of, the Holy Spirit who's living inside of us. 
1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 and 8. For God has not called us for impurity, church, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. You and I are called to live lives of holiness. You and I are called to reflect the nature, the character of our Father in heaven. But not only that, just as God's temple under the old covenant was designed to be a light to the nations, did you know that you and I, as the temple of the living God, are designed and intended to be lights to the nations? Where through our lives, we're actually drawing people to God to worship Him. Here's Matthew 5, 14-16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor people do, do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but rather on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the mission. That's the calling for all of us who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit today. That we live lives of holiness and that we burn brightly for Jesus, that we're a light to the nations around us, and that through our lives and through our gospel preaching, that they come to worship God. So in closing, the triumphal entry and Jesus' ministry in the temple during the final week of His earthly life reveals to us that He is the King and the temple of God's kingdom. Therefore, He's the one that we are to joyfully worship and follow because He's a King, and also because He is the one who cleanses us from our sins and brings us into the presence of God because He is the temple of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much that despite all that we have done wrongly in our lives, and all that your people have done throughout history wrongly, all the sin that we have committed, we're so thankful that in every era you have been pleased to dwell with your people. First dwelling in a temple, creating a system where people, despite their sin, could still relate to you, could have their sins covered over, could have a relationship with you. And then of course in coming to this earth yourself, Lord, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, tabernacling among us, and once and for all, yourself becoming the sacrifice that wouldn't just cover our sins, but would permanently and eternally remove those sins from us, casting them as far as east is from west, then rising again, and offering us eternal life in you, offering us reunion with the God who created us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. And God, we thank you that even now, we can still enjoy your presence, and even now more so than ever, because your presence is always with us, because you dwell inside of us. What a great mystery, what a great miracle. 
And I pray that as we live every single day as temples of God, as temples of the living God and of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower us as your people to live lives of purity and righteousness and holiness and good works. That we would reflect your character and your heart for the world. And that unlike the temple that had experienced mission drift 2,000 years ago, that we would stay focused on the mission. That each of us would be a bright light to this community. And of course, as we gather together every Lord's Day in your house here at this church, that we would be a bright light to this community. And that the Gentiles, the non-Christians, those who are far from you right now at this moment would be drawn to you and would find here at Apostles Church that this is a house of prayer. That this is a place where forgiveness can happen. This is a place where healing can happen. This is a place where they can meet with and relate to God and experience the family of God. Lord, do this in our midst. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.